Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. Ready to triple your creative production speed? Seltra is a software for scaling creative and content in the cloud. In Seltra, brands can create and launch all the variations they need for successful campaigns. More at Seltra.com. Hey, everybody. David Greiner here. Uh, Before we get started, just wanted to make a quick note about this week's episode. I think literally about one or two hours after we recorded this on Friday, uh, we found out that South by Southwest had been canceled due to concerns around the coronavirus. Uh, So you will hear, I think, maybe one or two passing comments in this episode about us wondering if South by Southwest would continue. The answer is no. Lots of coverage about that on adweek.com if you'd like to check that out. But just wanted to make that clear uh, before we get started. And with that, here's this week's episode. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek podcast where we talk about marketing, media, technology, pop culture, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor here at Adweek, and uh, we've got uh, we've got a big room. <laughs> That's right. I'm Co M, department's editor, and we are joined by editor Doug Zanger and reporter of all things Amazon and more, Lisa Lacey. And really, this week, our whole team is really coronavirus editors and reporters <laughs> because brands and event teams from around the world are working to respond with appropriate precautions. We're seeing a lot of changes. And uh, we've had a lot of stories on adweek.com um, covering all the changes that are coming down with this epidemic and, and concern. Um, Doug, do you want to start us off with Um, what you're hearing and seeing kind of from all levels. I know that, you know, we just had our Challenger Brands Summit where 10% of our speakers and attendees canceled, um, and but it was still, you know, a good turnout. Um, Even upfronts are being kind of affected, although CNN went on uh, with theirs this past week. Fox News Media and Comcast's Free Will already canceled their presentation. So where are we at? Are we at some kind of inflection point? Yeah, possibly, because uh, uh, Friday, March 6th, it was reported that there were 100,000 cases around the world. So that's a pretty big number. And I think when you start getting into six figures, that's something that perks up the ears a little bit more. So we're seeing a lot of cancellations. 
So there is quite a bit of agita and angst at the moment, and there are several areas in the industry where there's there's a tremendous amount. I, I wouldn't say fear. I think everyone is still in let's just see, hurry up and wait mode with everything. Experiential marketing right now and events, so I think broadly we can call it experiential, uh, is just getting hammered right now. So things are canceling left and right. On the agency side of things, uh, what we're seeing is experiential specific agencies are starting to, to feel the crush of this a little bit. And brands in general look to experiential as a way to be much more out in in culture and out in the public. And so it remains to be seen how this is going to affect that. But everything at the moment is on lockdown. And I think people are speculating, is this going to take one month? Is this going to take two months, six months? No one really knows. Um, but it's a lot of, we'll see. But Agencies are taking a lot of precautions, and we're starting to see that that everyone's really starting to take this really seriously, and probably with the gravity that it deserves at the moment. I went to a the King's Hawaiian pop up that our experiential reporter Ian Zelaya wrote up, and I did not go into the ball pit <laughs> oh, precisely wise. because of these concerns. Wise. And then ball pits wise. are canceled. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they were canceled and then in the nineties. Yeah. Well, they came back with all the kind of Instagram hype. And then, you know, at Challenger Brands, um, the events team, we also had many hand sanitizers. And a lot of people were doing like elbow bumps or fist bumps or like I was doing my namastes. And uh, <laughs> so there's a there's a lot of pivoting kind of happening. Um, you wrote a long piece um, on, on adweek.com um, that also touches on, with the help of our reporters, um, a look at um, how media is is being affected by this in good and, and potentially um, delayed ways. Yeah, I mean, the big one are the upfronts. So we're starting to see presentations being canceled. But in terms of a material hit, to media in general, we're not really seeing a lot of that at the moment. And Jason Lynch and Kelsey Sutton really helped out in, in codifying what's going on with that at the moment. But it seems like people and brands are still thinking the Summer Olympics are going to be happening in Tokyo. Uh, we're seeing you know, rating spikes. Obviously, people are flocking to TV at the moment. So news obviously is, is seeing an uptick. And then there's the, the fun, I guess fun using air quotes here is that TV, video, streaming, OTT can be a safe haven for people. And specifically, it's that type of content that is escapist in a way. So think Hallmark Channel and feel-good programming. People are trying to find ways to avoid the constant flow of, of news, and this is their chance to take a break. So, uh, so we're starting to see some upticks in some of those areas. But in terms of media, most of it is, is all so digitally driven anyway. Uh, we're not really seeing much of a material um, drop in any of that. And if anything, it's, it's primed to grow. Well, and, and I, I should point out that uh, first that the piece that we're talking about here, uh, Unprecedented Uncertainty, uh, and it was named the, on the headline, and it was just about the global scope of, of how coronavirus has affected 
the the advertising industry. Doug was the lead writer and editor on that and just did an amazing job. I mean, this should be required reading uh, in 2020 of basically, if you are looking for a deep dive um, into the impacts across the board to production, to advertising, to way more than we're going to have time to talk about, I just cannot recommend uh, enough that people check out uh, that article, Unprecedented Uncertainty, uh, by Doug, uh, by our colleague, Minda Smiley, and also uh, Kelsey Sutton, who covers the streaming and media worlds for us and contributed a lot. Um, but Doug, uh, now that I've given you uh, your your propers, uh, which are, <laughs> are very well deserved, I think what what it what it highlighted, and when we talk about the global kind of grinding down of advertising, and to your point, there's a lot that keeps going. Media keeps going. Agency life keeps going. But uh, it's really highlighted how much international travel, specifically. Uh, is just embedded into the process, uh, and especially. So, tell us about production. So, production right. just for the for those who don't work deep in advertising, you know, production is when you actually make the ads and you you go on, you do your shoots, whether it's in L.A. or Canada, um, but uh, it's all over the world, Prague and and Ukraine. You know, you, it's it's everywhere, and they're bringing folks in from all over the all over the world to make these shoots happen. And it feels like that's an industry that, on the inside, in terms of not being super obvious in the way that these mega conferences getting canceled is, you know, that it, this is going to be the one part of the industry that seems poised to take a, a huge hit. What, what did you learn about production in the, pro- in the process of reporting this? As a former producer, and I guess as a current producer in some way, shape or form, I have a bit of a soft spot for, for this side of the industry. And one thing about production that you have to remember is that production companies and people who have been in that part of the industry for a long time have seen a lot of things over the years and not necessarily just a situation like this. There was SARS, there was MERS, there were other issues like the financial collapse of 2008, uh, you know, 9-11 was, was another issue. But for decades, as long as production's been around, these companies and these people have always figured out a way through. And it can run the gamut from weather to civil unrest. I heard from one company that years ago, they were doing a production in Brazil and there was some civil unrest and the government came in and said, yeah, we realize that you're you know halfway through this shoot and this production, but you got to wrap it up. So... The production companies and production in general has a lot of built-in experience with things like this. Now, this is a very different situation, uh, but it's also similar in some ways. So most of these companies have protocols. They also have, um, there are times when insurance can cover it, but a lot of times insurance doesn't necessarily cover it. Uh, And David, you're very good at the force majeure conversation. Um, but you say you get you say it much better than mm-hmm. I do. Though. You're, you're, yeah, that's that your French, French minor. fluency really pays off. Right, that <laughs> French minor. It's, I knew I'd use it at some point. Um, but you know, I talked to I talked to the mill, for example, and you know, the mill started out generally as you know as a production company, and then they've really built into this really well oiled machine where. CG and VFX and, and a lot of these digital tools are, are there and it's it's really evenly dispersed among the mill and, and they really I mean they really for years have been have, have done great work. But in speaking to their managing director of their LA office, Josh Mandel, he was explaining that there have been processes in place at the agency for a long time where 
where people can take a lot of this work home. So in some ways, things might slow down. For example, a location might change. Um, so if you were planning on shooting in Vancouver, BC, for example, if you have to pivot and come down to LA, you know, there's some costs. But, but again, these companies have, uh, have long been in the boat of, of a lot of change. But because of digital tools, it doesn't slow it down nearly as much as people think. Now, of course, a lot of these brands are are the types of brands that have the big shoots and the CMO shows up on the set. And the the cue for this, and I, I need to go back to this, but I think it was Kirsten Emhoff of Pretty Bird, one of the co-founders of Pretty Bird, essentially was saying that we're taking our cues from the likes of Apple. We're taking our cues from P&G. We're waiting to see what happens there before mm-hmm. we start making these huge fundamental changes. And, and again, underscoring, underscoring this is, again, a lot of these companies have people who have been doing this for 20, 30 years. They've been to the rodeo before, and they'll try to figure out a way around it. And I think there, that's why we're seeing this, like, domino effect, especially, you know, from the top of when cancellations happen that, you know, that happened with Mobile World Congress at the beginning, and then people are kind of still in that wait and see mode. What I'm curious about is also the pre-production, right? In in the pitch process, Eric Oster wrote about how, um, you know, in the financial crisis, uh, people started rethinking travel too. Um, but now, you know, I mean, pitching over conference call is different from, you know, I guess keeping that relationship or establishing a relationship with a potential client, right? Right. Yeah. You know, I think that that's one place of the industry that, yeah, you you definitely want to do these types of things um, in person. But I also think that using a video conference for something like that, that's not, that's not a barrier that is, is, you know, people can overcome that. I think that that for the for the short term, I think that that's something. At least in the pitch process, I think that can still go. It'll be a little slower. It'll be a little different. People have to rethink the way that they're interacting in a pitch or a presentation. Um, but I think that that's something that will. I think it'll work itself out. Much like agencies having people work from home there are potential efficiencies there. And agencies might, obviously, this is a tough tough time for everybody, but f- some months down the road, an agency might look at this and say, you know what? We were actually more efficient here. We were more efficient here. We were able to do this here. So it's a, it's a terrible way to figure out how to build efficiencies <laughs> within an agency mm-hmm. or, or any company for that matter. But I think that it's it's this brackish water of adjusting to the situation and coming out of it and saying, all right, well, let's take a, you know, I think smart agencies and smart companies, when when this starts calming down, will take a step back and they'll say, okay, we just learned that, that we can be much more efficient here, we can be more effective here, and it helps us, you know, save a few bucks. It keeps our people happy if we learn that if people work from home two days a week, that that improves that improves. Um, you know, morale, or if that improves um, the, you know, the workflow, if it improves production, um, I think that they're going to find that, that there will be some sort of silver lining. And again, can't underscore the seriousness of the, this of, 
of this enough, and it's a terrible way to figure out how to build efficiencies, but that could be one potential upside of this. Well, and I have actually a parallel here uh, that uh, Lisa Lacey might appreciate. Um, In the early 2000s, there was another outbreak uh, that, you know, thankfully did not really expand too far beyond Asian markets, but it it did make it into quite a few countries. And that was SARS, which I believe was another coronavirus. And you know, that was one where China was a bit sluggish to acknowledge and respond, and they took some heat for it, and then they came down real hard. Uh, so it was, you know, you hear about it mentioned a lot in terms of the lessons that China learned. Um, but it, at the same time, because it started to spill over into other countries that were locking things down too, and, and people were just staying inside, uh, this was around 2002 to 2004. And so companies were suddenly one of the biggest struggles they had. Uh, and this is not coming from me. Uh, I, I was I was not working in the Asian market back then, but I was talking to uh, an agency executive who was, and said that um, that the the big thing was people weren't shopping. Mm. You know, people weren't going out and shopping, which is something, of course, we're seeing now. And so, Lisa, guess what trend uh, started to catch on because companies found themselves forced into it. I'm going to say e-commerce. That's totally right. And ding, so ding. <laughs> these, they had had that they, you know, it's 2002, 2003. E-commerce wasn't new, but it was not mainstream. And, you know, we, we of course, had seen Super Bowl ads in like the late 90s, 2000s for Outpost.com and all these places. But in terms of major, these major players really using e-commerce, uh, again, from what I'm told from this executive, it was something they had kind of been averse to doing. They just were in this very traditional retail model. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago. And suddenly people were stuck in their houses and they just wanted stuff brought to them and they weren't going to malls anymore. And so I think that's an interesting parallel uh, that we take e-commerce for granted now that that's something that and that we'll talk about more in a second too. Um, but, you know, it just goes to show that the, the, the thing that changed about the corporate culture um, that, you know, this executive was telling me is that suddenly they saw, oh, oh, this is this is important. You know, this is something we should be doing. We shouldn't just be investing completely in brick and mortar, but it wasn't even so much the facilities or the, the, you know, the software. It was that they weren't putting the people into it. They didn't have enough people staffing it for things like customer service. And so they had to pivot to that and start putting people into customer service online. And then that really ended up kind of helping spark the, you know, the boom in retail. Um, I, I do want us actually to dig uh, real deep into into retail, but uh, let's let's take a quick break, um, and then uh, we'll be right back to talk about kind of how this has been playing out in the retail and the global retail market. And Lisa is going to really school us on everything that we've seen so far. Uh, we'll be right back. Seventy percent of marketers spend more time producing digital advertising content than they'd like. Don't be one of them. Find out how creative automation can help. Learn how at Seltra.com. That's C-E-L-T-R-A dot com. And we are back with Lisa Lacey. Um, Lisa, you've written a bunch of stories about coronavirus in the last few weeks, including one that was kind of at the beginning, which was um, the f- effect and impact of coronavirus, the epidemic, and Corona beer. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there was it was a PR agency actually that that did a survey and then they put out a press release uh, saying that that consumers were conflating the two and that this was going to damage the the Corona beer brand. I'm not sure. Um, well, it, I mean, I think it turns out I, there were a lot of memes on, on the internet, uh, and so I think when you look at the data, uh, there are a number of, of firms that have offered up data about search trends and, and keywords and that kind of thing. 
I think uh, we can breathe a sigh of relief that I don't think the vast majority of Americans are, are confused or think that there is a connection <laughs> between the beer uh, and, the, and the coronavirus. Uh, it's at least some of that search traffic and in in those keywords is because of the, the memes and, and yeah. things like that. Yeah, but there are a lot of people still searching buying, stocking up, or being surprised that they're sold out about sanitizers, face masks, and even um, a DuPont hazmat suit, right, on Amazon? Yes, yes. The uh, stuff like that is is flying off the, the digital shelves. Uh, the Walmart and Amazon alike have been dealing with uh, price gouging, and, and sellers out there raising prices as stock diminishes. Um that kind of a thing. I did, I did something about a – it was Jungle Scout. They're like an Amazon seller software firm. Uh, they, they did some research on on those products and, and consumer interest and that kind of thing. And Adobe also sent over some numbers. And there's still uh, – I think it was masks. Uh, sales of masks are up 900 percent, something like that. So that uh, there is still definitely consumer appetite for, for products that uh, will – help them deal with the the outbreak. Yeah, and speaking of the products, um, the we got lucky, be, not lucky, but the timing um, was interesting because coronavirus, you know, started popping up around Lunar New Year when everything um, was a little bit shut down in China. And so now um, we had, you know, sellers um, and inventory buyers, they – had kind of stocked up and prepared um, for the holiday. And now we're going to see some impact. Yeah, well, that really runs the, the gamut. So it was sellers of, of any kind of consumer product uh, on Amazon had uh, likely already, uh, knowing that the factories were going to shut down for the holiday, had already sort of bulked up and had some, some additional product in reserve. Uh, but in interviews that I did a couple of weeks ago now at this point, they were saying that, you know, by – so these sellers would be okay if the factories were up and running again by about mid-March. So we're, we're getting to that point now. Um, and they do – these products have lead times. And so mid-March, you're looking at products that would be coming in uh, like April, May. And that's the point in time when Amazon is is looking at – I mean, getting ready for Prime Day, which is in July. And so um, – Potentially, we're looking at some impact on what Amazon will have available for sale on Prime Day in July already at, at this point in the year. Yeah, you know, one thing that's been interesting to, to that point about kind of watching these supplies run out is we're seeing a few different things. So, some, you know, really negative uh, and, and some, uh, I wouldn't say positive, um, but, but, you know, kind of a different, a different take on it. The one that I would say is negative that you mentioned the masks uh, selling out. And we've started to see a lot of threads popping up on Twitter of doctors saying, yeah, that, that's the same place we order our masks from and now we can't get mm. them and they're sold out. And what's what's fascinating is if you go into the comments on that. So the so the posts from the doctors are usually, hey, we really need these masks. You know, we're the frontline folks and we can't resupply now because they're sold out and you really don't need them. Like you're not going to need them in your house. Um, and then you dig into the replies and it's people saying like, that's not on us. You know, like like that's that's on you for not supplying enough for the for the worst case emergencies. And you're the ones who kind of downplayed it and said, oh, you should be worried more about the flu than about coronavirus. And now you're saying, hey, this is so serious. Why are you buying up the masks that we need? And, you know, they're screenshotting these same doctors posting stuff earlier about this isn't a big deal. You really don't you know, no one needs to worry about it. And so it's like starting these kind of fascinating and I, 
you know, of course, I tend to side with the medical professionals in pretty much any <laughs> argument. <laughs> but but at the same time, I, I feel for people because it's like basically a lot of these hospitals are saying, yeah, we don't actually have these things. You know, you, you would hope that they would have like the hazmat suits in an attic somewhere that they would have plenty in case of emergency and that they're not sitting around buying from the same Amazon buyers that, that the rest of us are. Uh, but it kind of highlighted that that was, that was the case. And that's why brands and even the e-commerce giants in China are making a call, right, to to have they, um, donations. They are. Uh, Alibaba and JD both are, are doing a lot to try to source medical supplies from all over the world. They've uh, coordinated with uh, whoever's in charge of customs to expedite clearance, so stuff that's coming through ports, airports, uh, just to get it to hospitals, medical professionals as, as quickly as they possibly can. It's also um, sort of it makes. I, I'm trying to word this carefully, but they're both putting out uh, blog posts, press releases virtually every single day, noting how, you know, because they have such uh, immense logistics capabilities that they're able to do this. So I don't want to insinuate at all that they're using this as like a PR opportunity, but but they're certainly like weaving in messaging about how because they do have the scale and, and breadth that they do, that they are able to uh, to bring this stuff in and, and get it where it's needed as as quickly as possible. Yeah. But to Davis' point, you know, it is bringing up interesting discussions and behaviors. A lot of people are, are stocking up and a lot of people are even, um, you know, shopping online more and live streaming more across the world. It's not just here, like in China. And there's something that's increasing with like drones. Yes. Um, the live streaming part for me was actually really interesting because um, we did see consumer behavior change shift more to e-commerce after the SARS outbreak. And so I'm curious whether, you know, this is the moment where uh, consumers, uh, you know, they start live streaming kind of because they have to. Uh, Alibaba and JD have both talked about how um, there are consumers in China who are stuck at home and they're getting bored. And so they're turning to live streaming to entertain themselves. But it's also, you know, farmers going on live streams because they have have produce that's going to go bad if they don't get it sold. And so, you know, tapping into the platforms to, you know, get the word out that they have strawberries or mangoes or whatever it is and, and getting it to uh, to customers that are ordering it. Um, there's also some vending machines in, in some cities around China where it's not don't quote me, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but it's, you know, stocked with fresh produce, that kind of a thing. And so you're able to uh, to use it to, to buy fresh fruit, fresh vegetables without having to uh, touch any, any person. Um, and so I think things like that um, are, are super interesting and in whether they stay, whether they become like consumer the behavior changes. Yeah. And drones, as you mentioned, uh, JD took a, uh, it was a, like a crop dusting drone and kind of refitted it and put it like was like disinfectant and it was uh so they used that to like disinfect a whole town that had been uh under quarantine for a very long time and so before people came out they crop dusted this this town with disinfectant uh but they're also using drones to make deliveries so like right at the center of the outbreak uh so that may be a way to help get some medical supplies where they're needed quickly and without any kind of human contact but there are some limitations given uh, the drones can only carry so much and uh and and things like that but in china i, sh I should say uh jd especially has a very advanced drone delivery network especially compared to other parts of the world yeah in, in the u.s um, you have a story out this week in in the issue about 
um, the FAA rules kind of um, putting limitations on drone capabilities here so far? Yes, yes. The FAA is is treading very cautiously, but I, you know, I've talked to a number of people about this, and it makes sense because it's, I mean, to have a whole bunch of drones flying overhead, like that noise, that sight, it would be really scary to, to have uh, the skies full of full of drones. And also, not to mention, you know, security risks and, and if, you know, if somebody was to take over a bunch of drones, like the, it could be a, a, a very bad outcome. And so... That, that's, uh, that's literally the plot of the new <laughs> Spider-Man movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you're joking or not, but I will. I'm not. I will no, okay. No. All right. Well, I can't, I, see. So it's I can't say more. I can't say more without spoiling it. But yeah, that's, that's, a, that's part of it. But. So... Well, anyway, so that's just uh, medical applications. Uh, like there's a – you need to get blood or organs or whatever it is someplace quickly. And so drones are a very good application for that. And that's, I think, why we've seen so much of that so far. I think well, here's here's the, what's interesting to me is that we've we've touted drone delivery here. And it's – you can get a Slurpee and you can get, you know, a very small box of something. And it's been this very sort of whimsical – Look at this. We, this is amazing. I'm curious your thoughts on now that JD, for example, is hopefully showing some progress with this, that these companies, at least in the U.S., will take this a little bit seriously and not just make it, a, make it about being a stunt. Because we get, we get press releases left and right on, like, look at what this drone did. So I'm just, I'm just <laughs> what do you think? No, I mean, that was, that was definitely the genesis of this story. And I, I talked to a UVA professor who, he likened it to the, the Segway. Oh. I don't honestly remember what the reaction was when the Segway came out, but there was some excitement, he was saying, and talk of how the Segway was going to really revolutionize public transportation, or just transportation full stop. And then in the end, you know, it found this sort of niche use case among, uh, what is these tourists on on trips and, <laughs> and mall cops. And so it has this very, like, it has an application, but it just, it didn't, U.S. infrastructure <laughs> was not, you know, totally done over to accommodate for all of us on these individual segues. Uh, and uh, lost my train of thought there. What was I going to say? Oh, and another guy uh, mentioned how he thought, because there is sort of a sense of urgency with drones, that it may become kind of like, like, uh, people in, in Manhattan who take helicopters to JFK mm. so they don't have to wait in traffic. So if there's something uh, that you want fast, <laughs> you can pay the extra money to have a, a drone deliver whatever it is that you want to your to your Brooklyn Brownstone or whatever, wherever it is. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the story that um, I was thinking of with uh, when you talk about people being stuck inside and just kind of how that changes, not just behaviors, but how it changes the marketplace too. I stumbled into a really weird um Example of this. Uh, does any do any of you know what the Ring Fit Adventure is? Oh boy, here we go. No, okay. <laughs> sounds like a um, circus. Yeah, it is a uh, accessory for the Nintendo Switch, uh, oh. the game console. It is a if you've ever done Pilates, uh, it is a Pilates wheel. Um, yes, you know, yes. And that's it. It's a Pilates wheel that you plug your Nintendo controller into, and then the game that it comes with basically um, takes you on this, like, it's fun. It's this fun little, like, Legend of Zelda type game, but the controller is this wheel, and you are doing exercises to play the game. Uh, and they're all real Pilates and yoga moves. And uh, it's a workout, let me tell you. It's, it's, it is not... Uh, a light exercise. And so, anyway, I got one for my wife for her birthday, 
Uh, and I bought it like, you know, two months before um, her, her birthday in February. And I, when I heard about it, I was like, oh, she'd love this. Um, and and she I does. can use it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And I was like, maybe my kids will use it on rainy days and stuff. And, and that has 100% been the case. Um, but, uh, but you know, she loves Pilates and she loves the Switch. And I was like, oh, this will be fun. So I got it. No problem. She loves it. But then I heard someone wrote into the podcast where I first heard about it and said, why can't I find any of these things? They're sold out. And um, and they cost like 250 bucks on eBay. And it turns out it's because uh, after the quarantine started kicking in in China, these people who were stuck inside all day ordered every single Ring Fit Adventure that was out there. And the entire global inventory got depleted wow. uh, because everybody was just like, I need something to do and I got to stay active. Uh, and it was just one of those because... You know, it just humanized it in a way. I, I think there's it's really easy and, and kind of infamous for the Westerners to just kind of think, oh, something happening in China is so different from something happening here. But I'm just picturing these these folks quarantined playing the exact same game that me and my family are playing, you know, and just like it just kind of really, I don't know, grounded the whole experience in a, in a way. And and you hear about this a lot of just how boring it is, you know, to be to be quarantined away and how it's changing people's behaviors. But just uh, just goes to show this thing is having implications that you can't even predict and, and that, you know, for everyone we know about, there's a thousand we don't. Yeah. And, and we're going to continue to track um, the coronavirus coverage. We have a tracker on our site. I'm sure Lisa and Doug will stay on top of how it's affecting all corners of our industry and our lives. I want to thank you both for joining us today. And we're going to keep things light and speak with Sam Barry, the editor-in-chief of Glamour, coming up next. Yeah, how are things going? Good. Yeah, good, actually. To be fair, like the first year was, it was a, it was a challenge for me because it was so different to like right. what I had done. I'm really loving it though. I'm really enjoying it. I think I'm really enjoying the stories that we're telling and putting down the things that are not working for us and then do, investing in the things that are, which has been, it takes a while to see the fruition of that, but like it's been amazing. Yeah. And and so some of the things that you are doing, yeah, um, a lot of it is, you know, trying to reframe or break the stigma, everything yeah. from... Money, especially that's yeah. a big one for you. Yeah. So is it is that working? Yeah, the money one is actually money for money has been was my first um, print issue, and it was like the topic when I walked in the building that I was really really invested in telling because glamour as an entity, as a magazine, as a title, has always been this service journalism for women, and I think one of the most important service for women today is financial literacy and freedom and there didn't really seem to be that many people doing it so it's for for us it's been brilliant because we've got from number one the audience has really really loved it right so uh they really get attached they really want to they they talk to us about wanting more then advertisers have come in that maybe hadn't been with us before because of the financial um coverage so fidelity or the um uh, advertiser of my podcast, lots of more financial institutes have been really interested in in advertising with us. And then um, the third thing is really like we've been doing these partnerships that you wouldn't have seen before. So we partnered with CNBC for Financial Literacy Month. So I think um, for me, it was I really wanted to do it because I cared about the story, but all the other things that happened in the halo around it have been really nice as well. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to be in your position and try to do 
kind of different things, mm-hmm. but also kind of protect this longstanding brand? Like, how do you think about that? It's something that I always think about. So I think when I walked in the door to Glamour, I was only the eighth ever editor in its 80 years. That is a lot, right, to take <laughs> on your shoulders. But one thing that was important, I've done, made a lot of changes in the last two years. I've made a lot of investment and concentration in, in digital storytelling, in video, in social, in building out the Women of the Year franchise. But underpinning all of that is this heritage of glamour. It's been around since 1939. Its original tagline was for the girl with a job. Like in the 40s, if you think about how you know forward thinking that was, and so when I think about all the things we do for women, um, there's a phrase that we have in our, in our mission statement now, which is our uh, new mission statement, which is we've stood for and with women since 1939. And so I do think about the heritage. I think what's important as a new editor in today in today's landscape is how are you moving, how are you keeping the core of what the brand stands for, but moving on the storytelling. And I think we've done that really successfully in our video franchises, in what we've been doing on site, again with Women of the Year, and we've seen the fruition of that. You know, we're up double and triple digits across every metric that we wanted in the last year. So it's been, yeah, an interesting growth. That's amazing, um, given the digital media landscape, especially for magazine and magazine brands. Do you know what I think it is? Is I think if you are doing, I'm really interested in what I call um, high value users, right? So yes, scale is really good and we're doing really well on scale. But um, I'm really interested in the people that come back to us over and over again. They do more than one thing. They read with us. They listen with us. They shop with us because our e-commerce has grown massively in the last um, year alone. Um, They come to an event with us. They're the high value users for us. And I think if you have a a really strong brand like Glamour and you can capitalize and keep growing those high value users, your brand has longevity and it has um, a right to play in certain markets. So um, that's really important. We've come away from the days that scale was the only thing that we cared about, right? That the world, the internet cared about, right? And remember the days of like the heady days of 2005 (laughs) where literally scale was all that mattered. So brand didn't matter as much. Now, we, it, it's been the realignment where brand really matters. It matters for the audience because they want to align themselves with a brand that they think and a title and a magazine um, that is a reflection of who they are. Right. So for us, we find that women that are really interested in being empowered, included and feel inclusive. So our fashion and beauty is very inclusive and um, size inclusive and diverse. They... Um, that feels accessible, not super aspirational that they can't feel part of the party. They're the type of women that come back over and over to Glamour again. Um, and I think that that affinity with brand is more important today than it was two years ago, three years ago. And it's re- for me as an editor, it's one of the most important things. So one of the metrics that we look at a lot, I look at a lot, mm-hmm. uh, and the team does, is time spent. So it's not you coming in and you're like reading two paragraphs and you're getting out. How long are you spending with us? And what are you doing when you spend time with us? And what's been lovely is to watch the people that you originally would only read with Glamour. Now they're listening with Glamour. We have the biggest audio brand at Condé Nast. Um, we've got like three podcasts. Out. One is money, one's on fashion, and one's on true crime. Um, they're also shopping with us. They're watching video with us. They're doing all these different things that you do in the digital world, but they're doing it with us. Right. 
And that, I think that's different, um, you know, even from two years ago where um, publishers kind of said, oh, well, we have different audiences on our site versus we have a different audience um, on our podcast. Mm-hmm. So we can't really think of them as the same. But people are cross-platform consum- like consuming, right? So- Completely. And again, the, high, the highest value user that you have or audience that you have is um, – is jumping from one to the other. Because you as a person, you read, you watch, you listen, you shop. And I want those people coming to Glamour to do that. And I think one of the big things that we do, you know, that and when I talk to agencies or digital advertisers or companies is that we have created for 80 plus years, we've created this safe place for women. And we're telling women's stories. And there's a lot out there at the moment where people are talking about, like, I want to put my digital dollars with somewhere that's safe for women. You know what? You know where there's platforms that mightn't be the safest place for women, but you can guarantee if you come to Glamour that you're in a place that or quality control of what is safe and feels like a safe place for women to tell their stories is is truly there. So when I talk to agencies and big digital advertisers, that's one of the things I say because it's it's really important, right? If you um if you're talking as a company that you value X, well, you should put your digital dollars where that is happening online. Um and that's important for me too. Yeah. Um a lot of our listeners might not know that you have this um, varied multimedia background. I mean, they can obviously kind of guess where you're from um, <laughs> wish, and, yeah. and know that you were, you know, born as a storyteller, um, as you told one of our reporters um, for the the profile. Um, but how has, you know, working for the BBCs and the CNNs, like, really helped you think about Glamour's future? And, you know, I think as editor-in-chief, you also have to be like the CMO of yeah. the Glamour brand, right? So how do, how does that all kind of come into play it's, with it, how you work and how you think? Yeah, it's interesting because the evolution, maybe 10 years ago, I wouldn't have been the obvious choice for an editor-in-chief. Maybe five years ago, I wouldn't have been. But I started, I'm Irish, the land of storytellers. I started my career in radio when I was like 20 overnights. I Ended up oh, in TV overnights, overnights on radio. <laughs> Everyone has to do the overnights. Yes. You don't know what real working hours are until you do the overnights. Um, I worked at the BBC in TV in a traditionally TV producer role uh, for BBC World News, but at the time was really interested in how we were growing our social audience, almost as a, like a side hustle on top of my normal job. When I moved over here, it was to run social media at CNN, which was this growing, this newer job. It was in 2014, and it was running all of the social media globally for the company. And we ended up having a team of 45 by the end. We worked with the TV and digital and debates and everything. It was amazing. And I think that led me to being a really good place to tell the stories for Glamour. And why I say that is I've learned in all of those iterations of my career that the platform can change. The vehicle for storytelling can change, but you got to start with the core, which is the story. And so in Glamour, you know, one of the first big stories I did, we did for um, print issue was Broken Hearts, which we started as a print, six page print spread. I I already had seen its potential for audio. So when the reporter went down to do a magazine piece, I asked her to get audio and what it ended up being was this podcast that was downloaded by 13 million people. Hmm. Um... So I think all of those different iterations have taught me to be very um, open to trying new things and telling new stories. So, you know, at CNN, 
I was there for 2016 election and I remember having the conversations of like, I started the Snapchat channel at CNN and um, I started, I remember going in once and asking, could I make stickers for Line, um, an app that is, messaging app is super big in Asia. Could I make stickers of... um, Wolf Blitzer and Anderson Cooper and I remember the heads of CNN <laughs> going what do you mean stickers and I was like well on this app this is how people communicate and stickers is a big language so in order to us to capitalize on what we have which is these amazing anchors that people know all over the world Christiane Amanpour and um, Wolf Blitzer and, and Anderson can I make stickers out of them and I think they were like this sounds like a foreign language you're speaking, but yeah, okay, go make stickers. And, you know, two million people downloaded these stickers online because that's the language that they spoke. So I think all throughout my career, I've been really open to like um, telling stories in a newer way. Um, and I, what I'm really enjoying, I yes, did go for, come from the world of breaking news and a lot of my career had been in breaking news. I think when I moved to Glamour, my first, what, one of the challenges for me was to, stop my breaking news muscle and like stop my sprint muscle and work on my marathon muscle. Mm. And I think one of the things that I've loved doing at Glamour is like the stories that take four months or the projects that take, you know, four months. We have something coming up for financial literacy month that we've been working on for four months. And in my previous life, I would be like, what's happening today, this week, now? At Glamour, it's nice to dig your teeth into an issue or a story or spend time with something. You know, we spend a lot of the year planning for Women of the Year. Yeah. We're already, the wheels are turning, this is the 30th year of Women of the Year. So I'm all, we're already planning a lot of events and um, a lot of uh, content around that. But it ha- officially happens at the end of the year in, in November. But already there's, you're building. Up I'm build, to it. We're building yeah. up to it. Yeah, and what a luxury, right? Like I also come from that breaking news background, you're right? Like, you have to think about you know elements on the spot. Like okay, I'm going to need this graphic yeah. in one hour, yeah, um, and go live in two, yeah. Um, so and that was like yeah. one of the hardest one of the hardest things. And I remember taking guidance from my team at Glamour. I think there was at one stage when I moved over that I was like trying to do. Breaking news. It was. I, I remember one of the stories was around Larry Nassau, and and I was watching his the court trial. Larry Nassau, who was um, who uh, was accused and found guilty of um, uh, abuse in the U.S. gymnastics mm-hmm. um, team, and so um, I was watching it, and I was like, "We need to get this now." And I remember one of my team going, "No, we got to do this with a glamour lens." Mm. And what we ended up doing was not doing all the stories that week. But we collected all of the women's um, testifying. And by the end of the week, when everybody else, when the worlds that I had lived in before, the BBCs and the CNNs of the world had like been constant update, we, uh, by the end of the week, had here is the full text of the survivors of Larry Nassau in their their own words. And it was literally just all of their testimony. It wasn't about him. It was about their testimony. And it was a real, it was a real kind of learning for me because it was a glamour lens it was, yes, of the news of the week, but we were doing it from the women's point of view. And people spent like on average about 11 minutes on that story, which is crazy in the digital right. world. But it was a learning for me to be like, you don't need to hop on every story. You got to look at what's happening and look at it through a glamour lens and tell the second or third or fourth month story. Yeah, um, yeah. And and that shows you leaning in and... Um, trusting your team, but also it goes back to the whole time spent. And um, to me, it also reads like, you know, you're letting the reader kind of 
take all that information, mm-hmm. um, trusting the the reader's intelligence, and you're saying here here it all is for you, right? You know, but back to service journalism, mm-hmm. right? So, um, I want to kind of shift to. I'm sure you get this question a lot, like where you think print could go um, and also if kind of your thinking has spilled over to the other Condé publications. Uh, I know that the leadership, you know, meets often and tries to do some cross-learning. So how how does that look? Do you know what? I learned a lot from – so I was not the first um, title to go – Print um, only, but um, digital, digital only. Even we do have print. We do print around Women of the Year. So I call us a truly a three hundred and sixty brand because yeah. we have the we're in the great position that we actually do have print for Women of the Year, and we can um, spin it up for any occasion. But really, our focus month to month and week to week is digital. Um, I wasn't the first, so I learned a lot. I, um, Carolyn, who's the EIC of Self, that was a brand that had been in print and had gone solely digital. And I remember before making this decision, sitting down with Carolyn and getting a lot of advice about what did and did not go wrong. I am happy to be that resource for anybody that wants to have that discussion. For us, just in the silo that is Glamour, it didn't make sense for us mm. anymore to c- continue to do print monthly when there was an opportunity to really invest in the in the places that not only could I see us growing our types of storytelling, I could see our audience growing and I could see our revenue growing. So it was like the trifecta where when I was looking and I'm really much saying talking about glamour in, in, in isolation, when I was looking at glamour, um, it, it completely made sense to come off a monthly print cycle because to grow those three things, storytelling, audience and revenue, not print, was my opportunity. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's almost like because you're not from that traditional background, you could kind of like, I think be I probably wasn't, about that. Yeah, I probably wasn't a sentimental maybe, right? right? Like I, 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 I love print and I really enjoyed doing it for yeah. Women there and I enjoyed doing it while I was doing it. And I absolutely think it's the, a brilliant medium. And um, But I... Yes, I was probably I was I'm less sentimental about the actual vehicle of this. I'm more sentimental about the story mm-hmm. and how we're t- telling that. And I think um, it was not an easy decision, but it was. Yeah, I yeah. probably from a non-print background, I was less sentimental about yeah. it. Going um, into the rest of 2020, you mentioned financial literacy months. I feel feel like you've done so much um, coverage of about money discussion, maybe it's like money 2.0 now, like where else are your efforts beyond women of the year? Are you going to tackle like another big topic or continue kind of focusing on on that? So there's a couple of things that we really care about this year that are kind of uh, carrying on from last year. But again, yeah, the 2.0 version, finance is one um, and fertility is another one. I think Mm. our audience are really, really you know, the service journalism around women, we have done an awful lot around fertility, infertility, miscarriage, egg freezing, and we've become a real trusted source for, for those stories. So we're going to continue telling them. And I think for our audience, which are women in their 20s and 30s, 
they're two things that they really care about, finance and fertility. Um, so there, we're going to continue telling those stories. I think it'll be interesting. We're looking at the lens of 2020. What does that look like through the glamour lens? So we're telling the story of the women behind the campaigns, women voting. What does that look like? Glamour is very much an audience across America. They're a bipartisan audience. So um, I think one of the mistakes, and I can say this as somebody that was in, deep in it in 2016, <laughs> one of the mistakes that a lot of places made in 2016 that they looked at women as a monolithic group that would vote a certain way and what we know that that's not true and I think we Glamour has um, a place to play in telling the stories of women voting and women campaigning and women behind campaigns for 2020 so I think that will be an interesting um, place for us to play now um, and later later in the year as well Um, Women of the Year is big for us. I think, um, what else is we looking we looking at in big? What are you personally looking forward to? Oh, me. I mean, I'm so, we're doing a lot around Women of the Year. So we're doing events across the country. So we're doing some stuff in LA and Atlanta. Um, I'm looking forward to that. I like the idea of getting out of New York. Yeah. Going into um, different places, meeting the glamour audience up close and personal, really hearing from them. That mm-hmm. excites me. Um, I think, um, I think, I, I mean, I've said it, but the money, I love, I love the money part of it. I love the finance part of it. We've really exciting things coming out for April around finance. And um, for me, it's a part that I really, really adore. And I, um, we, you know, we're constantly getting messages from women about, um, how that open conversation around money and f- work in particular. So I think one of the things that um, Glamour's done in the past when its tagline was for the girl with the job, we really are for working women and we work for women. So everything around career and negotiation, we might have some fun series coming up in platforms you haven't seen us play in before around career and money. So I think that they're important parts to us. Are you good at career and money? I think I'm, I've got better. Yeah. I've got better. I think I've learned a lot of lessons. I've been very open in my editor's letters about, you know, in my 20s, not negotiating for myself and then understanding the power of uh, where your colleagues are, what they're getting paid. Uh, we talked about the Salary Whisperer Network at, mm-hmm. at, at Glamour. Um negotiating for yourself, asking for more, asking for more than the just money, right? Do you want further education? Do you want uh, a work from home day? I think um, advocating for yourself, I think I've got better at it. And I know how to give advice on it anyway, <laughs> which is good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. What about you? <laughs> um, you know, I, there's always room to grow, right? you know, on all levels. And you, I truly believe, you know, you don't know until you ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and then always ask for a little bit more than you think because the the problems or the fear is bigger in your head. Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting for me how many women and men, I think, as well, but really I'm talking to women a lot of the time, how they're often afraid to ask because they think their job or the offer will be taken away. Asking doesn't mean that the offer will be taken away or that your job will be taken away. I think there's that um, that insecurity. Yeah. Um, is 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 palatable or palpable even, um, and I think there's a lot of super confident people mm-hmm. that are confident in everything, but when it comes to their personal career growth, 
they fall apart a little bit in terms yeah. of even just advocating for themselves. And I think if we can do anything at Glamour, if we can just make like a couple of women every year advocate for themselves in whatever way, um, I think we're we're winning. Yeah, I think small changes are still significant. Yeah, yeah. So thank you so much. Thank for, you for coming. Thanks in. for it's having pleasure, me. Thank you. Pleasure to chat. Thank you. That was great. Thanks so much for sharing that, Co, and uh, and for you know uh, facilitating that conversation. Yeah, it was really um, interesting to learn about where the brand is going, and um, you know, nice to talk to her for Women's History Month as well. And I also want to thank Lisa and Doug for joining us in the room today. It's always a pleasure to hear about you know the the different ways that um, you're digging into the different areas of coverage and um, always an interesting conversation to, to have with um, you two. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. All right. Our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Co M with production assistance by Josh Rios and edited by Lane McGivney. If you have not already, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews uh, help uh, new listeners discover the show and they just make us feel better. You can drop us an email anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And uh, yeah, we will be back soon. Uh, for Adweek, I'm David Greiner and we'll be back next week. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.